So welcome to BDP Connects. Uh, today I'm here with Harry Cody Owen from our national team. Hiya. Hello. Um, and we wanted to talk a little bit about repurposing, um, which seems to be the one of the buzzwords of the the year. Um, I guess we did back in 2020 a trend presentation where we looked at the growing demand for the need to repurpose old department stores or upper floor spaces and sort of shopping centres. Um, and we explored a variety of different alternative uses at that time. Um, Harry, you're at the forefront of, front of this sector. What do you think has changed over the last 18 months? Well, I think the trends that were happening previously are kind of continue to happen and really COVID just accelerated them. So we're still seeing that physical retail is, has contracted. But yet we've seen now a big surge in demand from these leisure operators. And the, the, the key really is the experience. Um, and also as well, we've actually seen a lot of these operators mature. Um, so there's more operators now than ever in the market. And then, you know, consequently, as well, there's more investment that's followed. You know, we just, I think, Tokyo announced the day that they had $100 million, which is you know, wow. phenomenal figures um, in your investment. And we've seen that kind of continue as well and filter through, and, and therefore we've seen terms improved. Um, so it's you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a booming sector right now. It's, it's going to be great to be at the forefront of it. Absolutely. That digital side is kind of growing too, isn't it, quite a lot? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the technology continues to improve as more money flows into it. You know, these games are getting better you know, from, from the VR side. That, you know, previously, I think it was considered a bit of a fad. Yeah. And now, we're actually, these games are getting so good and so immersive that people are happy to spend you know, significant funds on doing it. Yeah. I think landlords have accepted them as a use as well over the last 18 months. They've seen perhaps that shack in the city trade really well um, and now it feels like it's an accepted sort of use in the institutional market kind of is behind it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, I think the, you know, as we said, the, the, the market's maturing and now the, the, fig, the turnover figures as well that are coming out from you know, all these guys is speaks themselves so they give the land all the confidence and their ability to, to progress. I think it's been amazing actually how high some of the turnover figures have been since they've reopened after the various lockdowns. Yeah. It's like we're desperate to get out and experience things rather than just being at home behind a, a camera on a Zoom call. Yeah exactly it's from yeah from not being able you know, being able to spend anything and all this kind of pent up demand. Um, I think it's also as all kind of not taking it for granted. But um, but we're also seeing you know big surges in and like for like sales improve on not just the leisure operators but also kind of aspirational uh, restaurant and pub yes um, operators as well so and, and that's kind of that's, we're seeing that across the board which is again is really encouraging and also as well, actually it's I think everyone noticed it but prices have gone up and that means that gross profit margins as well have increased so it's. Um, Although I'm guessing they're having to bear quite a lot of extra costs with regard to staff, which seems to be a massive problem at the moment. Yeah, that's and the, then, it seems to be the biggest issue, doesn't it? Yeah, we've got a number of restaurants that just physically haven't been able to open on time, yeah. um, which is uh, so destroying when you've put so much time and effort into to doing something. You were lucky enough to catch up with Marc Bourgeois a couple of um, weeks or so ago and talk this through in, in more detail. Um, and Mark's got a great history of working with some of the bigger national companies. 
Um, what sort of things were you talking about? So, so really, it was a good overview of Mark's, well, from his experience of previously where he's got up to, and then his his overview of the future of retail, how he how he sees it, you know, the impacts of COVID, um, and then also yeah, the, the future of shopping centres and and yeah, retail destinations. For those of you who, who don't know, Mark is a uh, cycling fanatic, gentleman in, in, of the industry, and uh, an all-round. Well, I'm Managing Director of Hammerson, so first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's, it's really appreciated as I know how busy you are. Um, but yeah, so how, how did you get into property? Well, first of all, thank you, Harry, for having me here. It's good to uh, be part of the BGP podcast series, and I'm not sure that that introduction quite uh, quite does it all. But, uh, <laughs> I think if you ask anyone in my family, they call me a uh, porridge-eating, cycling obsessive who plays drums badly in a dad band. <laughs> It's ten to what I get. But I have seen you very, playing the drums, actually. That's very, so, very kind of you. Um, so, yeah, thank you for having me. How, how do you kind of get into property initially? Yeah, so I did an economics degree, and there were no property people in my family, actually, so it was quite a new thing. And frankly, when I was at university doing industrial economics at Nottingham, I literally didn't know what a property degree entailed. Um, I went into KPMG, which is a natural thing to, to do as an evolution from the degree that I'd got, which is a general you know, business, audit, finance background. And uh, as we were talking about earlier, to my kind of shame when I really think about it, my decision to go into property was, was a pretty crass one and based on some fairly, uh, on, on a pretty uh, bit of a whim. Uh, Donaldson's who were in Leeds at the time, great firm of retail uh, chart surveyors uh, needed a, a winger for their sevens team. Um, I was running for Leeds City at the time, knew a few people there. They seemed to be having a lot more fun than I was doing auditing Halifax Building Society, Noll Spinners and, and, and the like at uh, KPMG. So m- made the move across. It, it, it does sound like, you know, when everyone refers to it, it's the kind of the good old days, and boozing all the time and how much has it changed now? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I say that story now and it's, that's, it sounds like your classic stereotype <laughs> yeah. cliche from what a surveyor is. And I'm really conscious of that now, I think, as a leader uh, in this industry and wanting to welcome in as many people from as diverse backgrounds as possible. You know, my entry in is probably not you know, the classic at all based on who, who I knew. Um, but perhaps we'll come on to that in terms of you know, the way the industry is changing. But I think it is changing a lot, and, and there's no way. Uh, I might have got the job on, I, I like to think I'd have got the job on merit, other than the fact I could run fast, um, when, uh, back, in, uh, back in the early 90s. So how, have you always specialised in retail? Donaldson's was a retail-focused business, and my first role was managing the TSB portfolio uh, in the north of England, which was brilliant, brilliant cross view of, of actually a number of different uh, asset classes. There were certainly offices in there. There's a lot of residential and by you know, managing residential scheme, residential units when you know, you've got you know, a young mum without a job who can't pay the rent and you've got to make some kind of recommendation. That was really tough. Uh, there was the offices, there was um, little bits of leisure, but yeah, pr- principally retail, lots of A2 at the time. And then Donaldson's at the time, this was, if you like, in the mid-90s, was very much at the forefront of advising on a lot of the new shopping centres that were being built at the time. And, and initially, I kind of gravitated towards that. I, I really 
loved the complexity of the kind of multi-tenant form of a shopping centre. The fact it was you know, quite fun, you need to be quite financially literate to do it. There were some quite interesting legal legal uh, challenges with with managing these things, and also a real a real sense there's people uh, involved in them. So it felt more than just a property job for me, and, and having quite good operational experience and actually a bit of retail experience. My dad used to used to sell uh, used to have garage businesses, so I spent a lot of time on the on the forecourt, um, you know, selling cars. So I kind of enjoyed that whole retail thing, and probably uh, so falling into it professional reasons to begin with. But after I suspect about probably about five years in the uh, in the industry really fell in love with the principle of a, of a retail leisure destination, everything that goes with it, you know, the, the, the retail mix, what makes people really want to be there, what makes great brands to, to, to bring into one of these places. And it just was something that I think is really addictive for anyone who's got involved in that industry. And, uh, and clearly it's been a fascinating roller coaster ride ever since. Yeah, I, I guess, what have you kind of, have you seen it evolve then since how you started? I mean, there's been some dramatic changes, but... Yeah, I mean, look, when back in uh, certainly back in the nineties and the noughties, uh, I was I moved well, I moved from Donaldson's and was working at Capital and Regional, and we formed uh, a business called the Mull, and essentially we're rolling out a, a nationwide business of community shopping centres under a single brand, and it was great, great fun at the time. That was those centres and still are, so you know, still clearly uh, still still. Still, um, still active. Uh, those centres were community type town centre shopping centres with a big range of, uh, yeah, predominantly comparison fashion based schemes, and 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 evidently, you know, those type of schemes and any place where you've got a big fashion based comparison component has been hugely challenged. So I mean, the first big way the retails evolved is the those headwinds that have come with online shopping, the penetration in the UK particularly being. Right up there, at what certainly the highest in in Europe, and uh, yeah, it's globally right up there as one of the highest penetrations. So, the UK retail property industry has felt that headwind more strongly than anyone, and we certainly see that at Hammerson, the business that I well, see now. Why, why do you think? Why do you think the UK has seen it more than the other European countries? Do you think they just haven't adapted to the kind of internet sales and as we have? Yeah, I think this was the UK has lent itself really well. It's clearly it's an island. It's quite. It's got good road networks. Um, interestingly, postcode systems. Did you know? So, UK has really lent itself with really strong postcodes. When you compare it to say France or Ireland, and we looked at this quite quite a lot. And you, you, the, the logistics associated with delivery always lent itself better in the UK. Um, there was clearly quite a high take up of of uh, online um, here and. We have a population that generally doesn't ever live too far away from a city. Whereas you think about, and I clearly know quite a lot about Ireland and France, given it's a place where we do a lot of business, uh, you tend to have a more, a more, a broader and, and more dispersed population. So I think for all those reasons, it became, well, I say cost effective, and we'll come, perhaps come back to that. The, the, uh, many, many retailers, startup businesses still do not make money, or most don't make money from, from online from online sales but it's been a great testing ground in the UK for brands to brands to build and and what other kind of cultural differences do you think have happened in more recent times and we've seen that kind of sway towards well the decline of retail 
Yeah, I mean, look, I'm going to put you up on decline of retail, right? I mean, yeah. retail has gone through well, huge physical, challenges. Physical, physical sales. Yeah, and I think physical physical sales have meant that, I mean, I think it's one of the most exciting times to be involved in this, this industry and, yeah. and retail property. And especially for me as well. It's We're brilliant. Involved in repositioning it all. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's fantastic. More busy now than I think ever, ever we have ever been really so 100 percent. anyone that you're you're you know you're mid-20s harry you're just getting into this this is a such a great time to get into it um we've there's been a certainly a you know a decline in the pricing and rental values associated with all these places and we've since 2018 there's been a a tsunami of of retail failures and actually f&b failures on the retail side we saw a lot of businesses with legacy um, debt, too, well, too much debt. Um, Debenhams were kind of the poster child for, for that, having essentially been cleared out by private equity 10 years before. Mm. Um, there were many F&B businesses that you'll know, the casual dining, kind of private equity-fueled expansions that took place. Again, 2018-19, that started to, started to change. And frankly, a lot of those fashion uh, operators, the businesses just were not exciting um, compared to the, the lifestyle uh, yeah, the, the kind of lifestyle campaigns that you can create online to really capture capture people's imaginations. So um, I think it's been really, really painful. I mean, it's been very painful, as evidently from Hammerson's perspective, corporately. Um, we've seen you know, our voids increasing. We've interestingly working with great great agents like BGP. We've been uh, we've been leasing up pretty well as well, but the repricing has been quite significant. We've guided for quite some time that the from their peak values will drop to somewhere in the region of 35% of their peak uh, in the UK. And we just reported last week um, that we're about 29% on that journey. So a little bit more to come. But then the next phase, well, what does it look like going forward? And how does retail really then, re- physical retail reinvent itself? Mm. You know, it's, a, it's just a great question. There's, there's, there's you know, so much to it. I think in, in broad terms, what I'd say is that you have at the one end, hyper-convenience that people expect, enjoy, whatever age you are, you like the hyper-convenience of whether it's a, a, a super local um, retail uh, outlet uh, or it's a straight-to-the-door Amazon delivery, next-day delivery. And then the other end, you have the big day-out uh, experience and everything that's associated with the experience of buying something physically um, as part of something slightly slightly bigger. So, so do you think there's still a, kind of a role for the department store then? Cert- yeah, we'll come on to that in a minute. There's certainly a role for the department store, and there is certainly a role for physical retail. I mean, we've spent the, the last... I've had a series of calls with Rita Rose Gagne. Our, uh, our um, uh, CEO has been in place for about six months now, and it's been interesting uh, with Rita Rose to meet some of the, the key retail COOs, and the, some really the, uh, generally those successful ones, um, who all, to a person, uh, have great belief in the physical retail as part of a business that is physical online and as far as their customers concerned our customers concerned you don't think you don't say well, I'm an online customer or I'm a physical customer you just am a, a customer to that brand and the very best way you can interact with that brand and, and, and buy stuff from it whether that's walking in a shop seeing in a great amazing space and then going home and buying it online uh, you know that's just as relevant that shop's just as relevant to the whole journey than it would be if you were buying in that store. It's still driven that sale. So I think generally there's a huge opportunity and uh, to rebase physical retail and for some great new brands to come in and really connect with their customers in a physical way in real life in a way you can't do online. You then come to the department store and evidently 
the likes of Debenhams, House of Fraser, are have gone and that type of department store has definitely gone and these were these were businesses which essentially are trading with gross profit margins of probably less than 30 percent you then think uh, they've got legacy leases that are uh, yeah and and plus rates plus service charges which mean their occupancy costs have just gone through the roof they can't make the margins once they've stuffed the place up and they've paid for the uh, for the costs of the uh, of the general cost of running that store and all the people there to to make any money at all so that business model was doomed to fail and that combined with all of the legacy properties meant that, that they went. Converse that though with um, Selfridges, uh, with someone like Selfridges, we need Harrods. So I was in Harrods this weekend, as it happens, uh, wedding dress shopping. Um, <laughs> but that's another story. Uh, what a brilliant experience. I mean, I've not been to Harrods for a long time actually, I was still a little bit naff, but both Harrods and then to to Selfridges. And these are just fantastic places where you can interact with brands that you're not going to see uh, necessarily on the high street. You've got a whole range of, of different uh, retail offers, not just fashion, there's jewellery, there's, there's health, health, health and beauty, there's sport, but also it's interspersed some really interesting eating experiences. And I think if you get that right as a department store, then absolutely, but less of them. And let's talk Selfridges in, uh, we, we were on Oxford Circus, but clearly Selfridges in Bullery, Birmingham is, is one of our customers. And it's been a phenomenal business, uh, actually through not only pre-lockdown, during lockdown, they pivoted, did some really interesting direct-to-consumer, in-store, uh, online selling. So effectively, you've got your virtual assistants in the same way as we were doing, or our partners at Valley Retail were doing at Vista Village. Um, that combined with this really exciting environment where brands are always changing and you can have like a real experience of buying something there means most definitely uh, department stores are not dead there will be far fewer of them they're part of a big day out experience and 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 evidently they've got to be run super efficiently to to make those margins work in the context of a uh, of a, of a decent bottom line so, so the likes of like john lewis would you say that kind of falls into the same category as selfridges as well yeah so john lewis is really interesting and i i, I they they clearly are not quite the luxury high-end brands that you see in a selfridges you'll, you'll appreciate but what they have got is a really uh, huge brand loyalty, huge affinity from from you know, the UK uh, UK shopper. Um, they've got a great digital platform, which they were pr- pretty well. F- they were certainly uh, ten years ago were well ahead of of, of many of the others. Um, they have an overexpanded uh, retail physical retail platform, and I think that's 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 clearly being addressed right now. But fundamentally, uh, John Lewis, and, and indeed they've also spent a bit of time on developing their own you know, in-house brands. So back to that net margin point, the more a business can sell own brand and the higher margin they can get, the more they can drive the bottom line. So I think, look, John Lewis, they clearly have a new strategy under, under Sharon White. I mean, interesting different directions, including residential, uh, which I think super interesting opportunities, which uh, we, we're certainly keen to explore uh, with them. And uh, that combined with you know, this great customer loyal basis and a, and a good efficient uh, um, online business mean I think they are they're sustainable because I guess when I look at it I can see the market is going towards you know these the retail hubs are sort of a specific retailers kind of experimental hubs where you go in and try the product and it's all about the experience absolutely and then if they are going home or just trying something on or whatever it might be and they go home and just order online then for me that's get that's probably why I'm a bit more nervous about the future because as you said they're kind of traditional department stores 
um, th- that's right. And I think the, the that's why the brand selection has got to be so good. The experience has got to be so good. So when you're there in the moment in that department store on your big day out, you know, you're with your uh, you're with your other half. You've just had a lovely meal, a glass of wine. You buy that item, you take it home, and you always associate it with that amazing experience you had. Uh, and I think a lot of people, that's how they like to shop. It's a less frequent type of purchase than clearly the online purchase, but certainly that's it's that kind of emotion that the good department stores are really uh, looking to tap into. And are you surprised, given we've had you know the House of Fraser in uh, Reading, the, the Debenhams in uh, Reading as well, you've got the uh, House of Debenham, sorry, in Bullring, and are you kind of surprised how quickly you know we've managed to reposition them into, I guess, leisure? Uh, no, I'm not, because these are great locations. Uh, I think it's a huge issue, UK retail property, PLC. These things are huge issues. We're very fortunate at Hammerson. We've got these fantastic locations where you know people want to be, brands want to be, and there's typically an alternative use. You know, We've done a deep amount of work um, looking at how we reposition these things. Lucky, look great to have Harry Badham joining the business back in uh, a few months ago. And uh, you know, energising the whole thinking around who we get into these places and how we how we look at alternative uses. But there's a whole range of, of uses we're looking at right now. I mean, we put a planning application in at Leicester for essentially a demolition of the Debenhams and building 300 homes. You've just mentioned Reading, super exciting opportunities, um, both short-term and, and medium-term. You know, Reading itself is, uh, in terms of resi, price, resi land values, is right up there amongst the uh, best of them. You know, we look at, um, at both Boring, uh, where I think there's an opportunity to really consolidate the very best retail and leisure in two Bullring and that former destination, the former uh, Bullring uh, Debenhams location. Uh, we've certainly you know, had a challenge to just pick the right option because there were plenty of them. And then across the way in Grand Central, we had uh, John Lewis that as a location, a venue was never really suited to a department store. It's not a fault of John Lewis uh, corporately. This location, that store just didn't work. But when you talk about uh, yeah, a, a former department store above one of the busiest uh, and, and actually best presented um, transport hubs in the UK outside London, there's stacks of opportunities there. So look, we're pretty confident about what we're doing with these. And uh, yeah, again, it's great to uh, have, have the um, insight from a broad range of markets to work out which is the best option. And do you think filling these vacancies with leisure is the right option? Do you think that's, is, is there a kind of a one-size little solution? Uh, look, there's no one size fits all, for sure. Leisure, absolutely, is is an option. But again, you've got to look at what else is there. And I think looking at any one of these, these uh, anyone, any Hammerson venue, you know, look at it not only at what's there in the venue, in our venue, but also is in that town or city in which we're represented. You know, take Birmingham, for, for example. You know, Boring alone is relatively you know, retail, leisure, kind of focused. But if you're there for your big day out in Birmingham, then you know you, you can go to the, you can get your your your, your cultural fix elsewhere. Whether it's in Digbeth, whether it's up at the uh, the art gallery, whether you wanted to walk along uh, walk along the canal, and, uh, and 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 see the jewelry quarter. So there's always more going on, and you've got to think about what to answer the question you've asked. What's going on both in that centre and beyond? And leisure might be the answer, but as I say, it might be offices, might be a, a residential demolition, might be more retail. Uh, it might be um, some sort of very cool combination of all those three. Yeah. I mean, I was in um, Edinburgh last week at the St. James's Quarter. Oh, yeah, what do you think? I think it's incredible because it's, it's just a top example of a mixed-use you know, scheme. So yeah. From residential, I mean, there's no major 
department store anchoring apart, no from, anchor. the, apart yeah. from the John Lewis, which has kind of always been there. But you know, you've got a cinema, which is an every minded four screens, you've got residential, you've got two hotels, you've got a decent amount of retail, but it's not too much, mm. and, and then a really good amount of restaurants, and it's just, together it all really works. And I kind of think that's the that's the way forward. Mm. And when you visit a place like that, that's not work, is it? That's just you're enjoying being there. You're enjoying just participating and being in this great place. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So that's no, good. I need to get up there. Yeah, you should. And then also as well, I think the the success as well that we've seen from these food food halls now, kind of the next evolutions of them that we're starting to see. Have you, have you seen anything in particular that you've been like, really impressed with? Or yeah, well, again, starting this weekend uh, in uh, Mercato in in uh, Mayfair is pretty pretty special venue, isn't it? Combination of food and uh, and a great a great environment. Um, there's clearly look. There's loads of there's loads of great ones. But why, why do you think that these are the? This seems to be so successful at the moment. And why, why do you think that is? Why what is about these that? I think there's a the the a contemporary consumer wants to feel that there's they're experiencing something different they're experiencing a bit of individual individuality and these places can you know can get some fantastic you know up and coming brands up and coming businesses who may never have taken a kind of formal location like this before and really feel like it's special and it's different so this curation of space uh, is something that you know when you think of leisure and F&B offers in these venues 10, 15 or 5 years ago and it, you're more then back to the, the PE fueled casual dining sector, it was pretty dull and was pretty pretty uninspiring so that combined with clearly the wet lead piece and that enables these places to trade profitably, if you can, or you know this, I'm teaching you stuff, but you, you know, you've got some great brands uh, which are selling food and then you've got uh, a wet lead offer, it's typically controlled by the venue owner and profits coming from the venue owner, you've got a really sustainable business as, as clearly um, Roger and co are, uh, are showing with BoxSpark with their, uh, their well they, they kind of started that model in Shoreditch and, uh, and they're rolling out successfully. And I mean I think it's, it, it's so important because you know you can just keep revolving these operators in these food, food markets <laughs> that if they don't work you get one out and it's on sixth term you know, six month terms and it's, it just keeps it fresh do you think that is and to me as well because they're going in there it's really low barriers to entry do you think we can learn from that the institutional landlords can learn from that most, yeah most definitely uh, yeah we i mean hammerson many other you know big institutional operators whether it's prop co developer or uh, or the institutions themselves you know have been used to long income um, certainty and that's the valuation the whole business model has been based on that so there's no doubt and we we are Hammerson and, and and I know we're not alone are absolutely looking at and prepared to 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 focus on uses that drive short-term revenue and if that's that's about the very best mix in the way you describe rather than necessarily the person who's going to offer us the biggest rent for the longest uh, longest lease because we all know where that got us right I mean we spent uh, we spent the last Five ten years, you know, giving some big Capcoms to some, you know, apparently very stable brands, only to find that uh, CVA later we've got nothing other than a, uh, a, a a big unit filled with kit we can't reutilize. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an unsustainable way of doing things. You know, when you would get one operator wants a huge Capcom, you know, seven hundred fifty grand, whatever it might be, and then four years later we get bust, and the next operator wants the same amount. It's just such an unsustainable way. Indeed. So I think that's why I think the that model in terms of or fle- just flexible has everything has to be much more flexible now and I think we kind of we are learning that yeah and from again just from the investment perspective though yeah. 
what 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 you need to do and what we as owners need to do is be prepared for flexibility but then be able to demonstrate an income stream and a stable income stream and that doesn't just apply to food and F&B that applies to retail as well so we've been talking for quite for, for quite some time about <coughs> the new evolved lease structure and rather than the 25 year up but only lease you know at, at leases are going to have four key components um, the first is flexibility and that's two way flexibility so it enables the yeah. operator to, to to be able to go if it doesn't work, and the and then the owner to be able to um, you know flip in and out, and get the best guess, best guess, get the best mix. Rents based on affordability. So we are um, categorically, as are, I think a lot of other owners, moving away from an idea. It has to be a fixed tone, has to be a fixed rate per square foot in order to hit the zone A, hit the uh, the scheme tone. Recognizing that depending on the brand, we need to have the right brand. Some may be able to pay more than others. Uh, and that's a learning for both both us and the occupiers because some might not be comfortable paying more than the next door neighbour, but if we can drive the right mix, then we should do. Third element is then, you know, an element of this this affordable rent is is, is a base uh, that's essentially no institutional rent reviews anymore. This is essentially indexed. Just take out that whole rent review piece and uh, and, and be done with it uh, because it's it's again led led to probably um, uh, you know. It, it, Behaviours that aren't that aren't necessarily in the best best of the asset. And then finally, it's that turnover top up, and and that's so dependent on depend on the the occupier. For uh, certain occupier might be you know, pure sales. Others, it might be some form of top up relating to uh, halo impact of online sales. And others, it might be footfall. You know, we are there to sell footfall to most of these businesses and brands, and for them to be able to convert that footfall. So those four common those four elements of what a lease is going to look like. I think we're all wrestling with. What we have found out there's no one size fits all, and and certainly you know a a, a heavily invested F and B operator will be different from a um, from a you know a, a pop up who's coming in for a uh, for a week, right? I mean I'm using two examples there, but that, those are the um, yeah, the broad premises that we're we're operating within now. And then when we can do that, we can build a sustainable level of income and start to grow that, then. The value starts to get underpinned, and the institutional investment starts to come back, and the multiplier that you that you put to that income stream starts to starts to increase because there's more certainty and less risk associated with it. So, do you think the investors can get used to turnover-based rents? Yeah, for those reasons. For that, uh, you know, we go back. We think back to the when the premium outlets business started, and that was at the time felt quite risky, felt not particularly certain. Those sort of schemes were yielding double digits, uh, double digits income yields. You know, they came into six percent as the as the sectors become established. You can see the growth there, and there were never there were never other sort of sub five four percent of the big institutional um, you know, retail venues, but they were they were certainly came right in. And that's exactly that reason. Fundamentally though those are still uh, you know flexible operational leases that now have a you know a multiplier that's um, that's based off six percent rather than the ten. And I guess in, in terms of I guess that's kind of one of the good things about COVID that we've been able to see these new entrants coming through. Yeah. What what other good things do you think we've have come out of this period? Out of COVID? Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, there's been a lot written about how, and the pay, the media do quite a lot to stoke this around the antagonism between occupiers and uh, and owners. Our experience being the opposite. We've we've been, I think, had many many more really collaborative, really great partnerships with occupiers as we've worked with them through the pandemic to help their businesses. Whether that's a national, uh, whether that's an international brand, or whether it's a local operator. Now, 
our philosophy throughout has been to to ensure that we emerge from this with the right people still there and helping them to the extent, to the greater or lesser extent they may need that. And that's been a huge positive. Some of the conversations that I have and all my team have had over the past um, 18 months have <clears throat> been incredible and far, far more collaborative than we'd, uh, we'd seen before. I think secondly, you know, we really have accelerated the, 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 the disappearance of brands that frankly shouldn't have been there. Um, so a lot of poor occupiers, those I was referring to earlier, I won't name names, but we, don't, we all know who they are. They shouldn't have been there and this has just meant that we've, we've got there quicker. Um, so, look, it's been a hugely painful for all of us. It's been exceptionally painful for, for our business, for our shareholders. But looking at the positives, it feels as if we've got a reset and entering a really exciting town, time now for you know for all of us, all of our stakeholders, all of our, all of our, our team to really grasp this and uh, see the opportunity of rebasing and building. So would you say Cambridge Country has permanently um, scarred the landscape a bit or do you think it was just... It's just accelerated what was already going to happen. Yeah, I wouldn't use the word scar. It's an acceleration for sure, um, and yeah, for all the reasons that that that, that I've said. Um, yeah, I think we've. I think there's a huge amount of resilience has been built up out of this for for businesses, for us as individuals, and these are all good things. I mean, I think anyone who's lived through this and worked worked through this last eighteen months, you know, as we do get back to a stabilised position. Uh, you know, this would be a fantastic experience for everyone, and only that sort of resilience and ability to deal with uncertainty and change, which is something that, frankly, any good career needs to be able to deal with. I think we've all we've all had a masterclass in that in the last eighteen months, no doubt. And and what do you think though that new normal will be? Do you think everyone is going to come back to work five days a week in in the office? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? And I don't think anyone who tells you they know the answer to that is probably uh, making it up. Um, what what at Hammerson and the businesses we look at, and clearly everything all of us read suggests that there's going to be a balance. It's not about being in the office five days a week. There's no doubt, and I think we've all just realised the value of of being together and the you know the the collaboration, the the creative sparks that come when you're in the office. And it's just good fun, frankly. And it's fun. I mean, it's just it's just great to be back and great to be able to. To meet are, are you, are you coming chat. in five days a week, or have you changed it out like a bit? Uh, no, I'm done pretty four days a week. Four, uh, yeah, four days a week. So, and, and most of the, I mean, we've been pretty intense time at Amazon, so most of the senior leadership have been in that kind of length of time. Uh, we're generally guiding uh, that it's three days in the office, two days uh, working from home. But then you start overlaying that. And the real value of, of you know, our business, I'm just guessing, is with yours as well, is being out at the venues themselves. So, I mean, office time is fine. It's fine for, go for, for, for work, working with your colleagues, but the real value is added when you're out at, the, you're out at, the, at these venues and you're really living and breathing and coming up with the ideas to make these places better. I, can, I kind of think it would be a bit, it's a bit of a generational thing as well. I think if you graduate, you know, living in you know, zone two, whatever, in a shared household, and there's loads of you in a communal area, then I think you're more likely want to be able to come in. But I think if you're living out in the country and you commuting hours a day then I guess you're more likely to, to stay at home so uh, it'd be interesting to see how that what that permanent change if it is permanent at all has on you know the the general outlook on of like local schemes really because I think there's been a huge research, resilience and resurgence in local neighborhood schemes right? oh for sure which I think we I don't think anyone well I, I certainly didn't would think would be that would happen a few years ago. In fact, I thought rather the opposite. I thought local neighbourhood schemes would be kind of you know, dying, and then yeah. whilst 
primary, you know, pitch and actually probably might even grow, and that that's where the retail bits seem to. It's back, to that, it's back to that convenience point. I mean, yeah. these places have become convenient. You've got a more of a captive audience if you've got, you know, I mean, whether it's a generation, you know, uh, X, Z, or or um, or millennials, they're all, they're, you know, they're, they're, some are going to be working more from others, and and those, I guess, you're talking about the generation Xers who are sitting in their gardens out in the out in the country. You know, they've they've clearly been. I'm speaking for myself, clearly mm-hmm. been supporting some local businesses, uh, but. You know, so I think there's definitely for certain locations there's a, there's a there's a, uh, a permanent improvement and sustainability of those. But equally, I think people are going to be getting back to city centres. They really, really will. They are just for all sorts of reasons. They are places where people, businesses want to be. I guess in terms of um, the the experience and of, of the offer for generally, how important is it for for a, a destination to succeed? The experience of the offer of that destination. Yeah. Oh, look, I, it's, I mean, it's fundamental. And it depends what you mean by experience. You know, it's are you creating that emotional outlet for people? Are you creating that entertainment and excitement that people uh, look for? You know, does it provide them with that kind of level of escapism that, that they just don't get when they're on their, uh, when they're in the bedroom shopping or, or, or even there's an educational element to these, to, um, to, to these places. And I think any, any curator of, of, of spaces needs to think about all those elements you know, the environment if I speak to an occupier and say what, what, what is it uh, yes, a, a leading retailer so what is it you need us to do um, typically the answer is well we want a place that's clearly highly accessible um, that's always been the case place in the location 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 we want a, an environment that really speaks to our brand so a high quality environment that that, you know, that shoppers guests feel uplifted and then reflects the experience you're going to get when you walk into that brand store um, and then most importantly it's that mix of brands and it's that curation and more so than ever now and I've kind of made this point earlier in this conversation more so than ever before it's about curating that perfect brand mix you know the mixture of the the international uh, the international you know fashion brands we're obviously doing a lot with the internet in Inditex and H&M right now it's then bringing in some of those non-fashion consumer brands um, you know, Lego Samsung Apple uh, are all have all been quite acquisitive uh, of late, and then alongside that, some really interesting pop up brands that no one's heard of, and 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 give that level of excitement of discovery when you come to these places. That all combined then with some great F and B and great leisure uh, alongside it, and and in the context of that city centre layout experience, it's all of that. Harry, I think make, makes it um, makes it, and we've got to work harder than ever to be able to. You know, get people into our places and enjoy themselves. I, I think as well it's really important for it to succeed. It's, it's important for destination to be quite you know, community focused and have that really be in touch with you know, what the locals want because I think each, each destination has its own characteristics and I think if it's a cookie-cutter approach, it's proven you know, like the Inti model, that it just doesn't, doesn't work. It's got to be community focused to, to succeed. Yeah, and certainly when I when I look at the work that our um, you know, customer experience and marketing teams do, particularly the social media teams, you know, we talk a lot about how we, you know, we curate we curate locally uh, those messages and and you know the level of engagement that you get when there's a, a local story, a local message, and constantly pumping that out. Consumers aren't really, uh, particularly uh, those millennials and and um, well, the millennials generation said they're not interested in. Uh, some, they can they can smell a sort of corporate corporate slogan a mile off. So it's got to feel really authentic, really local, and really uh, uh, really relatable for people to do that. So yeah, that's all I guess tied up in in, in what you mean by community for sure. And um, 
kind of generally on a to, to try and speed things up a bit in the market because you, you quite often if you're in the, you know shopping centre wherever it might, might be you can see a, a vacant unit can be vacant for quite a while what what are the solutions to speed that up a bit do you think we could do you know where a lot of operators now will only want to turn certain three years and you know if you if I was going into legals it can take you know, six months which again just doesn't seem quite as efficient as it should be do you think is there, is there a simpler solution to that yeah of course there is um yeah speed to value is absolutely where we've all got to be right now how do you change how do you make that vacant space into income mm-hmm. and experience uh, as soon as possible uh, space that's flexible is really really important and certainly when you think about some of these big destinations that were built 15 20 years ago you know having that flex they're not necessarily as flexible as they might be and in order to repurpose the space you've got a quite a, quite a big building contract so increasingly you're going to see more flexibility of, of, of space and you know, demountable partitions be able to plug and play far better and we're certainly thinking hard about that uh, the leasing structure is clearly uh, got to evolve and back to my points earlier there's you know th- those those four elements i think if we can get more more you know, standardization and recognition of a the partnership between us and an occupier and so from a hammerson perspective people know what they're going to get when they come to a hammerson scheme they know they're going to get a certain you know speed of deal they know they're going to get a certain uh, a certain lease type but look we as many others have got quite a lot of work to do on this and we recognize that and uh and evolving from this you know, speed to value from where we've been, more institutional, is, is, you know, is, is a continued challenge for us. But you're absolutely right. It's a good question. And then uh, just kind of on that, in, in terms of business rates as well, which seems to be kind of putting a lot of people off, um, I mean, it, it, would you say that business rates are one of the fundamental reasons why retailers are struggling or do you think it's just kind of part of a wider, wider issue? Yeah, it's certainly not a fundamental uh, reason. It's, it's part of the wider issue. Um, had business rates adjusted more quickly, uh, the we still would have had the same points that we talked about earlier in terms of the headwinds. But evidently, uh, the business rate system is broken, and the sooner it changes, and the sooner they it more more fairly represents the value of these places, uh, the better. And we can talk about that. But let's you know, it's 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 certainly not a fundamental issue, but it's certainly a big one for us. And we're spending a lot of time, and I've I've, done, I've spent. Uh, the last 12 months with BPF and actually directly to Hammerson haranguing retail ministers and various ministers about this particular point. They do get it. So I am, I am optimistic that we're going to have some progress here. Uh, they get it. But equally from a Treasury perspective and ultimately the Treasury making all the decisions, it's still and always has been quite a soft target, quite an easy win. But now the, you know, the, 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 the noise level is so great around business rates and the inequality of them is so great, particularly when compared to the online playing field, uh, it's something will change. So I feel quite optimistic we're going to get there. And I've been talking about this for probably seven or eight years now, but I think we're going to get there. And co- another good thing from COVID, I think COVID has helped us to uh, accelerate that revaluation. Good.
Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been really interesting to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, look, thanks for having me, Harry. And as you say, I think it's a hugely exciting time to be involved in this industry. We've gone through enormous changes. They've been difficult, but I think we're all stronger as a result. And anyone involved in this industry should feel pretty excited about what the next few years holds. That's brilliant. And um, what advice would you give to any kind of young surveyors kind of who want to be in the position that you're in now? Blimey. Um, I think just work really, really hard. Uh, always put yourself out of your comfort zone. Uh, keep a good balance in your life. So whilst you work hard, you've got to work hard on the other stuff. You know, make sure you keep your head clear with some decent sport and, and your family as the, as, the, as the foundation in all of these things. So a nice loss of balance, but really work hard at it and keep curious and always going for new things. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Harry. Enjoyed it. Cheers.